Blog Talk Radio. Hello, hello, hello. This is Dr. Simon, and this is my show, The Stories We Live By. And I have been doing a whole series of shows of late. Oh, by the way, I should stop. My, the topic today is changing the stories we live by our own, by our own efforts. Revised version. Um, a few days ago, I put up a version of this. And when I started the show, I had taken a nap. And I woke up out of my nap feeling kind of groggy. And four minutes before I had to do the show, and I ran... And I realized when I thought about it later and I started to listen, it was a lemon. It was a a bomb, a meatball. So I took it down and I decided, uh, since I'm feeling uh, rather alert and and better today, uh, I would uh, do the same show, uh, but a little more leisurely and a little more logically and with a little more verve. Um, I've been doing a lot of shows about psychotherapy what I call psychotherapy, where I put therapy in quotes. Uh, if anybody wants to give me a better word maybe that I could use, because visually this is very effective, psychotherapy with quotes, but not auditorily. When you speak it, it doesn't sound any different than the word psychotherapy. Um, and I suggest that as a process where people, individuals, examine the type of life narratives uh, that they live by, especially those that cause them and the people around them misery, unhappiness, destructive, in which uh, somehow they keep making the same mistakes over and over again, and somehow um, they don't fulfill their dreams, their wishes, their ambitions, uh, and this is all independent of whether life throws them hardballs or tragedy uh, or, or events that um, would be big roadblocks towards uh, achieving some kind of, of uh, happiness and self-satisfaction and creativity uh, and an ability to find, receive, and give love, um, which to me are the goals of, of a good therapy, all therapy. I put it in quotes, as anybody who's listened to my show, the word therapy, Uh, Because when you're trained as a psychologist, you're trained in what's called the medical model. And let me give a little bit of five minutes of history on this. World War II produced a bumper crop of individuals who uh, had tremendous trouble adjusting to civilian life and who, after the horrors of... uh, of, um, of combat, uh, couldn't function emotionally without crying, had trouble sleeping, uh, terrible uh, rates of suicide. And the people who became important in dealing with these individuals and helping them were the psychiatrists, medical doctors. And they inherited that long tradition of using... um, words that denoted these problems as a, as a uh, medical problem. Uh, and anybody who's listened to my show knows I question that. Because a medical problem has to have some kind of biological basis to it. And when somebody comes out of a war 
and interestingly, it used to be called in World War One. It was shell shock. Uh, it, before World War One, it was called cowardice, and an individual who broke down emotionally and couldn't fight would be shot or hung. It was treason. Uh, by World War II, it was war neurosis, and now we have the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. It's all the same stuff. And what happens in, 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 in the training of people uh, who the psychiatrists uh, um, were treating, uh, there weren't enough psychiatrists. The problem was a massive problem. So psychologists began to ask whether or not they could participate in the uh, helping, in the treatment of these individuals coming back from war with such unhappiness and such uh, uh, inability to function in life in a way that wasn't frightening to their family and, and, and terribly uh, unhappy and demeaning to themselves. And the battle took place on two fronts. One was, will we accept the um, medical model? And ultimately, it was accepted, although at the time, the dominant psychological theory uh, was behaviorism. Now, behaviorism, conditioning, that, that this was all a conditioned phenomenon, um, was going to veer away or wouldn't have anything to do with psychoanalysis because psychoanalysis, Freud's invention, was um, seen as part of medicine. But ultimately, what happened is that the entire field went in the direction of this medical model. If you came back from war and you were filled with guilt and dread and you couldn't get the terror out of your mind, there was something wrong with you. And so psychotherapy became a much more lucrative and widespread uh, uh, procedure in addition to those who had MD's degree. Sooner, later, sooner rather than later, social workers began to train as clinical social workers, and they, too, partook of the process. In the 70s, when I first came into the field, most people who came for therapy paid a, a reasonable fee, and there was no medical insurance to cover it, at least if, not if you were a doctor, unless you were a doctor, a medical doctor. Psychologists got medical insurance to cover the cost their patients could come and be, be, be helped and put in a bill to the third-party payers, the insurance companies, social workers, soon after. This created a narrative that couldn't now be escaped. Fees went up because uh, the insurers were willing to pay over the years increasing amounts of money. And it became the, the story by which psychologists live by. Now, what's interesting to me is that most of the psychologists and social workers that I've worked with really do practice psychotherapy with a quote around it. They listen to the stories that the patient brings about their life. They listen to the stories that the patient talks about 
in terms of their self-image. People who are miserable and unhappy very often talk about how they hate themselves. They wish they were never born. Depression has at its core a great deal of self-hatred, anger towards the world. Um, but this, in order to be worked with, had to, and be paid for by insurance, had to be coded and had to be put in as a story about an illness, something wrong with the individual. But in the work that good therapists did, they listened to the stories. They questioned the individual telling the stories. They tried to help the individual clarify exactly what had happened. That asking question, what did it feel like when you did this? What did you feel like when these events, when your father uh, came home drunk and pushed your mother down the stairs? What did it feel like to be in a war? What did it feel like? Recognizing that these emotions were now part of the story, part of the narrative that the individual was living by. Individuals overwhelmed with guilt had a self-image that, that, and ways of thinking that somehow they were responsible for everything bad. And because they couldn't bear the guilt, things they actually did which could be judged bad, they would deny so that, that the things that were being discussed very often needed clarification. What are you responsible for in, as a child? I had many patients over the years told by a parent, an unhappy parent, that they were the reason that the marriage broke up. They couldn't understand how they did this, but they accepted that they were the cause of the misery of their parents. When a good therapist listens to this and asks questions, it helps an individual see themselves from a different point of view. Because the narratives we're given as children, our name, our religion, our nationality, and all of the events that occur that we're told by parents and teachers, uh, which are accepted as truth when we're young children, get baked in and create a story that has consequences. Right? And the people who come for therapy, over the years I've recognized, and this is not just me, anybody I've known, and I've known hundreds of therapists over the years, are people who are unhappy. And somehow nagging at them is the feeling that they have a responsibility to somehow change their life because while they were victims and often play the victim card, explain what's going on and why they're doing bad things to themselves and others is because they were a victim, this begins to change if they can examine these stories. And this, to me, is what psychotherapy in quotes is. I still have the problem of what do I do with the diagnosis. And I have to admit in order to see people, um, I, I use the diagnosis. What I began to do over the years was to discuss with the people I'm working with the nature of the diagnosis. And what I believe it was, it was a moral label, a metaphorical illness, not a real one. 
there's ethical, all kinds of ethical and legal issues involved in this. But I feel it's very, very important because when a person's story contains the idea that they're hopelessly damaged, that they're neurologically impaired in a way that can't be fixed, and the best they can do is take their medicine and avoid all stressful situations, this is a terrible story. It's a hopeless story. It adds to the misery and the self-destruction of the individual. Most of the people I know over the years who've taken medications will say they don't feel better, they just don't feel. 30% um, of the people who take antidepressants seem to be helped by it. 70% don't. So you watch on television where one chemical after another is added. Rather than ask, what's the core story in a depression? And anybody who would like to go back and listen to some of my shows about the depression, because I'm not going to talk about it specifically tonight, um, we'll see that there are certain fixed ideas in the story of people who are very, very depressed. One is a self-hatred. I'm no good. The other is nothing can ever change. It's all hopeless. I can't change it. I'm helpless. Uh, these elements, when put together, provide a way of living demanded by that narrative where joy and love uh, are just incompatible with the image I should never have been born or the idea that I'm so destructive to the world that I shouldn't even be in it. What I want to talk about today, uh, one of my it's very interesting. Um, when I began to study in the 60s and then the 70s, there were all kinds of battle lines drawn between uh, academic behaviorism versus psychoanalysis and within behaviorism, which other types of techniques work better than behaviorism because they began to proliferate all different ways. And within psychoanalysis, there were almost, I, I'm sorry, there were cults. There was the Freudian cult. Then there was the Harry Stack Sullivan cult and the Eric Fromm cult. And my favorite was a woman by the name of Karen Horney, H-O-R-N-E-Y. It's not horny, because if you knew her life, she wasn't. This was a very lively, incredibly interesting woman, very, very bright. And she, in the course of her, uh, uh, I'm not going to discuss her theory, maybe some night I will, um, the, in the course of her, her writings came up with a book called Self-Analysis in which she felt that an individual, if given the tools, can do a tremendous amount of work in figuring out where his stories have him trapped or herself trapped. Right? And that's what I want to talk about today. Uh, I won't get to everything tonight, so I'm hoping that uh, I'll have a title in another night or two, Changing the Stories We Live By, uh, we live by our own efforts, um, part two, part three. 
One of the things that I came up with, what I discovered after I read Thomas Zoss, the great Thomas Zoss, uh, the myth of mental illness, and it's one of those events, you know, where you heard about somebody dying. I remember exactly where I was when I heard Kennedy was shot, President Kennedy was shot. Or uh, bring it up to date. Most people will know exactly where they were and what they felt when the Twin Towers came down, 9-11. Most of us remember the moment we met our uh, wife or husband. Most of us remember all kinds of stuff that gets fixed in our memory that was extremely important. And when I read Zoss, everything changed. Because what Zoss was saying was very simple. There is no medical basis for any of the judgment of the of the uh, uh, patterns of behavior being uh, caused by a medical problem. That is, a measurable brain problem, a measurable biochemical problem. Uh, the gold standard, he said, of uh, knowing why a person died of a disease was an autopsy, and they were cutting up brains left and right research psychiatrists, and really could come to nothing that would explain uh, 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 the problems of the individual. And then when they did find things, it was possible, more than possible, very probable, that the individuals whose brains were being autopsied were taking uh, very powerful uh, antipsychotic, so-called antipsychotic medication, which we know cause all kinds of, of uh, serious neurological problems. Just this week, there was a, uh, another uh, discussion on my Twitter account of akathisia, which um, anti- many of the antipsychotic, the older ones especially, uh, cause this shaking, violent shaking and grimacing, uh, really destructive to the quality of an individual's life and health. So, I began to work with the idea that if these illnesses are metaphorical illnesses, then what are they? If we judge your liver as being cirrhotic, or there's a hole in your stomach and we diagnose an ulcer, there is a physical problem being defined. Something's wrong with your liver. Something's wrong with your stomach. If if there's a brain problem, a tumor in the brain, something's wrong with the brain. And when we say something's wrong with an organ or the physical being of somebody, we've made a medical diagnosis. But when we say that something is wrong with the behavior of an individual, what we're saying is something moral or ethical. You shouldn't think this way. You shouldn't want sex more than this amount of time and express it in this way as society says it should be expressed Etc. When I first came into the field, homosexuality was a diagnosable mental illness. Fascinating. Um, as, the, as the sexual revolution took place and gays came out and the society changed, I'm amazed how far, far and fast it's changed, there were psychiatrists who came out as well. Psychiatrists and psychologists, anybody could be gay. And so they changed the definition. They changed the diagnosis from 
a, a choice of life or, or, or a way of living rather than an illness. Because nobody wants to be given a label that way. Terrible. Okay. One of my favorite, I, always, I have to add this, one of my favorite diagnoses uh, was created many, many years ago uh, during the era of slavery by a doctor named Benjamin Rush. Interesting fellow. Rush was one of the signers of the, uh, of the Declaration of Independence. He worked on the development of the Constitution. And he came up with the diagnosis drapedomania. Drapedomania was the illness that caused slaves to run away from their master. There was a brain problem. And the cure for this was a really good whipping. If it continued because it tended to be uncurable. Slaves still wanted to run away from their master, and the fact is, it was catching. It was communicable. Once one slave ran away, other slaves wanted to run away. Imagine that. So the treatment was hanging by a tree by the neck till dead. That cured it. You can go through all of the diagnoses. They're funny in a way if they weren't so tragically sad. And so I began to work with the idea of how do I help change the story of an individual so that they don't see themselves merely in a moral light, but they can describe themselves. Because what happened in the di these diagnoses is that the moral judgment acting as hid itself as a medical diagnosis it hid in plain sight. And therefore, when an individual says, I am a schizophrenic, which breaks my heart, their entire identity is defined as an incurable disease, a, a total defect of their humanity. When, when, when this would happen, the cure for this then was at least change the idea I have schizophrenia I behave schizophrenically at least make it a quality of the individual uh, no one ever says I am a cancer you don't do that I have cancer and I fight it so I began to think about this and I realized in the stories we all live by we're constantly using judgments as if they're explanatory, explana they're explanations, that is, descriptions that provide an explanation. And in science, we learn to look with our eyes and describe what it is we see. And I'm going to give you a definition of description in a minute. And when you could describe it well enough, you begin to understand it. And the better you understand the phenomenon, the better you can begin to predict how that phenomenon will work under any and different conditions. And finally, if you really understand something well enough, you can control it. But if you make a judgment, it doesn't go anywhere and it stays the judgment. So when I hear people say, oh, God, there's something wrong with me, I want to stop them at that moment, <laughs> even though I'm not their professional, and say, there's nothing wrong with you. 
you feel wrong. You're thinking in a way that makes everything about you wrong. Let's describe your life. Tell me about the events of your life. Tell me who said what to you. I mean, over the years, the things that children that brought that, that grew up with stories. Uh, I, I've said this before. My favorite was a very depressed woman whose mother referred to her always through childhood as the abortion that failed. How do you process that? How do you process that? You're, you're, you're some kind of waste material that should be put in a medical bag and discarded because it's not healthy. So let me give you a definition, because if we can understand the difference between a description and a judgment, and any of us can stop ourselves from judging ourselves or others while trying to understand where we are or they are coming from, what is the story they're telling in descriptive terms? A description is a statement about something that talks about its color, its shape, its position, how it feels to the touch, how it smells if we smell it, what it sounds like if we drop it or roll it on the floor. In other words, a description is a statement about sensory information, about events, about the things that happen to us and the things that happen within us. I was thinking this thought and that thought. Somebody says, I'm a bad person for the thought. Now, there are people who learn in their religion that there's no difference between a thought that's considered bad and a sin and the actual doing. Um, I take a sort of uh, Freudian approach. Said Freud, we can't do anything about what we feel. As human beings, we feel certain things under certain circumstances. But if we know it, and understand the feeling. Then we have a choice not to act on it. And so if we're making a judgment about something, make it about overt actual behavior and not thought. Thoughts and feelings are simply to be understood for what they are and where they come from. And we develop a capacity to make a choice If we grow and mature, and I use the word mature as a judgment, if we mature, to not act on things that would ultimately be tremendously destructive. A judgment is a statement that carries value or worth. Let me give you some examples of how judgments can work. I'm amazed by Anybody who can write a symphony, especially one that I consider a good symphony, and I'll pick here, although I have trouble after 60 years of listening to classical music, to hear my Beethoven anymore. I like a lot of the 20th century stuff, which speaks to me post-Holocaust and post-World War I and post-World War II in a way that the romantic music of the 19th century as a narrative expressed itself. But we say, how does he do this? And give a judgment and say he's a genius. To say that somebody is a genius is to create a positive value. The 
problem is we have no idea how Beethoven actually went about writing that symphony or his, as any of the works or anybody. What's the process? I had a good friend at the college when I worked uh, who is only now after his death getting his due, a fellow named Arnie Rosner. All of a sudden, he could never get anything. While he was alive and I was there, uh, he couldn't get anything published. He couldn't get anything played. He could get stuff published but not played. And now first-rate recordings are coming out of Arnie's music. Uh, I just recently downloaded a piano concerto that he wrote when he was 19 years old and graduated that year at 19 from NYU with a degree in mathematics. Now, we could say he's a genius, but I said to him once, how do you write music? He said, simple. You write words because you think in words. I write music because I think in music. Now, that's a piece of it. There's nothing genius about it. This is something in the way he's built. And I think, by the way, Good writers, good composers, really creative people also have a kind of a courage. They're not afraid to throw themselves in and, and say and express themselves full-throated and full-heartedly. I think that's also part of what we mean by genius. But the word genius means nothing. When we hear somebody say something that sounds outlandish, they say that uh, uh, the devil is talking to them. We say they're crazy. Why? Because they're, why are they hearing this voice? Because they're crazy. Just the same as Beethoven wrote the symphony because he's a genius, but it explains nothing. If you examine the word crazy, what it really seems to imply is it makes no sense. But then you have to ask, to whom does it make no sense? I have worked with people over the 50 years of my life who would hear God speak to them. And it all made sense, given the context of their life. I didn't understand the mechanism, although towards the end, I think I began to understand the mechanism. Uh, one of my favorite theorists was Piaget. And Piaget said, when we're very little, the way we think and experience the world is very different than if we grow out of that stage into a later stage. And I think that we all have conversations in our head. I know I do. I don't know anybody who doesn't. But somehow, if we actually have someone answer us in the conversation and hear it as a voice, we're crazy. But it explains nothing. I think it's partly a developmental issue with many individuals who don't work in certain areas to go out of one stage into the later stage that would produce more acceptable behavior. Right? Crazy explains nothing. makes no sense. To who does it make no sense? We have this all over. We use a judgment. Um, somebody slips in a restaurant. They fall. Oh, look how clumsy they are. Five minutes later, on the way to the bathroom, we slip on the same wet spot that they slipped on. And suddenly we understand the slip in terms of an experience that can be described. The floor was wet. It was very slippery. I didn't see the water when I took a full step. We can change our own stories to the degree that we could learn the difference between a judgment and a description. And once you start describing yourself and you're aware of all the judgments, 
that we make about all of us, about others and ourselves, the story we tell completely changes. Because now there's explanation. Not only that, we begin to sympathize with the individual who behaves in this particular way. I live in Florida in an area where there's a lot of old people. And I'm one of those old people. And some of these old people take medication, unbelievable. They're in their late 80s and they're taking 10, 12 medicines a day. I don't think maybe they should be in a car. But since there's very little public transportation down here, and being in a car, especially if you've been an adult all your life, whose car and the automobile has brought you independence, why then you don't give this up easily? They do things on the road that just your head shakes, your hair on your neck stands up. Well, it's so easy to say, look at that, what that schmuck is doing. What an asshole. All of a sudden now we think we're explaining the behavior. It's an asshole in the car. Well, very different than if we feel this is an individual who is impaired by a, a certain amount of, of dementia and a certain number of drugs that interact, creating a problem, dangerous problem, with their driving. <clears throat> One explains. One leads to a course of action. The other leads to screaming, pressing on your horn, and giving them the finger. Okay? Which, by the way, now has a diagnostic name, road rage disorder. You didn't know if you honk your horn and you scream at people in your car. Rather than ask, why am I so angry over this? Right? I don't understand what's going on in that car. I don't like it because I don't want to be involved in an accident. But to say it's because they're an asshole or a schmuck and give them a finger and create all this interpersonal rage and fear doesn't seem to me in anybody's best interest. But that's the story we're living by. So number one, if we're to become our own psychotherapist, is first of all, stop diagnosing ourselves. And if we're given a diagnosis, question the meaning. I've gotten a number of people I know to ask their doctor, who called them depressed, right? what physical test did you use to demonstrate my depression? How do you know? Right? takes a lot of courage to do that, because most of us are trained to see the doctor as authority, and questioning authority, especially as I've talked about many times, in the authoritarian situations in which we live so much of our lives, takes real courage and it takes, uh, 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 has consequences. So that's number one. And you know what? I'm kind of tired and nobody's going to listen past this. So I'm going to do a next show. I want to talk about the nature of self and identity. And then if I get to it, between the brain and behavior. Right? And you can become aware of aspects of your own thinking, a la the psychologist Piaget. If everything you say is hyperbole, that is, it's the most or the best or the worst, and there's no shades of gray, 
you can examine that and what it does to your stories and the consequences of those stories that you're living by. I have to go and see my, my house is on fire. My wife pointed out that we've been here now 11 years, and this is tonight i cleaning the stove. And the house does not smell good. I've opened windows. I hope the fire alarm doesn't go off. Oh, that's what I need now, the fire department here. Okay, folks. Uh, I'm going to hold on for a moment. What I'm going to do is when I finish these shows, I'm going to set up. And, and by the way, this is not self-help. I never tell people what I think their lives should be. Uh, I have my goals and my values of what I think a good life is. And I know when I'm living that way and I'm trying towards those goals, I feel very differently about myself and the world in general than when I don't. But that'll be another time. And if anybody wants to call in, I'm going to sit here for about another 60 seconds because after that I have to go outside or else I think I'm going to faint from how bad the smell is from this oven cleaning itself. Lordy, lordy. God only knows what's been living in that stove. Maybe our health will improve. Maybe. Okay, folks. Have a great evening. Or whenever you hear this, a great day. Terrific. <laughs>